believers in Thessalonica receive? Well, we see it there in verse 1. They received how they ought to walk and to please God. Now, look, I, I believe that the Apostle Paul was very careful to select by inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. There's some words here that really stand out to me. They're the words ask, urge, receive, and ought. See, these words show me that there was a choice that the Thessalonians had. They could choose if they wanted to heed what Paul will exhort them to do. And from the very beginning, they could have rejected Paul and his message, but instead they, re- they chose to receive the word of God with joy. And even when affliction and persecution came upon them for the reception of the word of God, they could have chosen not to continue in the word, but they chose to remain steadfast. And so then, as decided followers of Jesus, they were choosing, we are going to follow Christ. They knew that they had been called by God to walk a life of faith, but look, they still had a choice if they wanted to receive what Paul is going to exhort them to do here. And here's that choice. There is a way that believers in Jesus ought to live. We ought to walk and to please God. Walking speaks of how we have an active participation in our discipleship with Jesus. When you walk, you need to decide if you're going to put one foot in front of the other. And then to be pleasing to God speaks of how God feels when we make that decision to walk with him. And that word ought speaks to how we have a choice in the matter. And if, if you're anything like me, then you know that you don't always choose to do what you ought to do, right? But praise God that the Thessalonian believers chose to be faithful to Jesus. And I can imagine that everyone here today, that you want to be faithful to Jesus. You chose to be here today because you want to hear from the Lord and you want to draw near to him. But remember that a life of discipleship to Jesus, I don't think should ever be defined as easy. In many ways, we find that in the Christian life, We don't choose to do the things that we ought to do. And look, for me, even though I have the knowledge and even the spiritual desire to make the right choices, there are decisions that I still make today that cause me to stumble in my walk with God. There are still choices that I make that do not please God. When we know what we ought to do, Christians, and we do not do it, That is sin for a follower of Jesus. It's the sin of omission. And yet I know that as a beloved child of God, I am still a work in progress. And that in in those times that I do not choose God and his ways, God still chooses me. There is therefore, right, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, since we are those who walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. I'm just going to say something, is that, I've found throughout my Christian life that sometimes during the holiday seasons, it can become very trying and very tempting to follow the Lord. 
and I make decisions that I didn't want to make going into the season, and I made them, and then I feel a sense of shame, and I feel a sense of guilt, and sometimes that is a difficult place to be in. And so if you're coming into this week, and you're feeling like you went into Thanksgiving wanting to make choices that you did not make, God's grace is poured out upon you today. God sees you, and God loves you, and God just says, okay, continue to walk with me. And so let me say it again. There is a way that as disciples of Jesus, we ought to live. We ought to walk and to please God. That means that the character and the conduct of our lives matter to God. The Thessalonian believers were doing well in that. They were well-pleasing to the Lord. They were walking with him. But Paul says, I want you to do it more. Look what he says again. Let's read in verse 1 again. Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that is, you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul was thankful to have received that report from Timothy that the believers were doing well, but he says, guys, I want you to do it more. I want you to grow even more. Now, I don't know if you've ever come to a point in your walk with God where you've sort of made this decision that you are good with where you're at in your discipleship to Jesus. Maybe you've come to a point where you've begun to think, you know, I love my spouse. I've raised my kids in the church. I attend most Sundays. I, I give a portion of my income to the Lord. Um, I, for the most part, I make the right decisions. And, and you know what? I think this is as far as I will get. I'm good right here. And you're saying, I don't want to fall back in my walk with God, but I just don't see myself progressing any further than where I'm at today. Listen, there is a way to walk with God, and it's to do it more and more. There is a way to please God, and it's to do it more and more. So this is the amazing thing about a relationship with Jesus Christ is that he loves you right where you're at today and yet he loves you too much to keep you there. God is always wanting to see you develop more and more in your walk with him. But isn't that a choice? Don't we have to decide with Jesus if we want that? And so you need to come to God a personal God, and you need to decide with him if that's what you want to do. And, and that can happen for you today. It could happen with praying a prayer as simple as this. Jesus, I want to walk with you more and more. Jesus, I want to please you more and more with my life. Lord, you've instructed me in your word in a way that I should live my life. And it's the way that I ought to live my life. So God, give me the grace to choose that and to live that more and more with you. It's as simple as saying that because, guys, we should never come to a place in our relationship with God where we say, I'm good right here. I'm, I'm just good right here. We should always want more. Well, continuing on from verse one, you're thinking, man, he's only covered one verse. <laughs> How's he gonna get through this chapter? I'm not closing, by the way. But this sets the foundation, I believe, because if we come to God saying, God, I want to walk with you and I want to please you, that sets the foundation for the rapture of the church. 
If you don't want to walk with God, or you don't want to please God, then what would be said about the rapture of the church matters very little to us today. And so, verse 2 says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is going to ask and urge the believers toward greater obedience to the things that were instructed to them, remembering that these instructions were given through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see two areas where we'll see instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ for how we ought to walk and how we ought to please God in this world. And the two areas we'll look at today have to do with sex and work. Do you remember when we were going through the book of Nehemiah and the people rediscovered the word of God? And there were these areas that they had historically struggled to obey God. And do you remember what those things had to do with? Sex and work. And so in the same way, the things that people struggled with in Nehemiah's day and the things that people struggled with in Paul's day are the very same things that we struggle with in our day. You know, the human condition has not changed all that much. The same things that these people struggled with there in the first century are the same things that we struggle with today. And so let's look first at that first area that Christians need to be set apart for, which is in our sexual lives, verses three through eight. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things." As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, one of the main things I find Christians often getting concerned about is they want to know what God's will is for their life. Anybody here want to know what God's will is for your life? A big question. I often find this to be especially true among young single Christians. Now, if we only had the Word of God to tell us what God's will is for us, does the Bible say anything explicitly about God's will for you? You know, perhaps 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 might have something to say about God's will. Let's read it. For this is the will of God. Whoa, we might be onto something right here, right? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Do you want to know God's will for your life? That you would be sanctified. Now, sanctification is a term that we might not all be familiar with. You you were hoping, for this is the will of God, that you have a pretty wife and a big house and a big bank account. No, it's just saying your sanctification. Well, what is that? Sanctification is a term that we might not all be familiar with, but it comes from the idea of holiness, that God's will for you is that you would be set apart for God's use. And sanctification is also a process that we participate in once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it continues on until we are glorified with him. Sanctification is that more and more part of our faith with God. 
But simply put, God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. And then we see a semicolon there in verse 3, which means that we get an example of a way that God wants to sanctify you in holiness and honor, and it is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, let's be very clear right now what it does not say. It does not say abstain from sex. Sex is a gift from God to the people that God created. And God created all people. God made man and he made woman. He made us equal in image, glory, and dignity. And yet he created us with distinct purposes for one another. God made woman for man because he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. Amen? And God created a woman named Eve from the flesh of a man named Adam, and God joined them together as one flesh in a bond of marriage with the act of sex, bringing them together in that covenant. Sex was given from God to his creation for procreation, hence Cain and Abel, and sex was also given for pleasure, hence nakedness in a cool garden. But sin messed that up, right? Sin messed that up because sin brought immorality, transgression, impurity, and disregard. All words that Paul uses here in these verses, these were words that were never intended to be associated with sex. And yet because of sin in all of us, what we have done is we have taken a gift of God and we have distorted it for our own lustful purposes, but God is seeking through Jesus to restore our brokenness. Paul then gives a few things to consider about sexual immorality, which those two words come from one Greek word, the word porneia. The word porneia was a broad term that was used to include anything and everything that is outside of the sexual morality that God has instructed in his word. So, so God created sex. He designed sex. And so he has some things to say about it. See, God has instructed that sex ought to be between one man and one woman in a secure covenant of marriage. And anything outside of that or beyond that is sin, immorality, transgression, impurity, and disregard for God in his ways. Now, we have a choice, right? Just like the Thessalonians had a choice. We can choose what is being said and urged of us, or we could disregard it. We can live our sexual lives in the way that we ought to, which is the way that God has said we should in his word, or we could choose not to. But before you choose not to, I want you to first consider these things that Paul says as warnings, verses four and five, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles do, or Gentiles who do not know God. Now, Jesus gave instructions to those who followed him saying that we ought to know how to control our bodies in holiness and honor. That's saying that Christians ought to be different from the world in our sexual lives. You belong to God, 
if you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God has made his spirit to dwell in you. You are his holy temple. Therefore, you are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We are to have control of our bodies, which is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, which means that we do not follow every whim of passion, but we're to be set apart in holiness and honor, which is unlike those who do not know God. People who don't know God, go ahead, do whatever you want. You don't know God. But if you know God and God's Spirit dwells in you, then Christianity has said that we have a very strong sexual ethic. And and you know that strong sexual ethic is what has kept many people from coming to God because they think that God is controlling and that he hates pleasure. Far from it. See, why God gives us these secure bounds of covenant in order that we could control our bodies is for our flourishing. It's for our benefits. But look, you have to come to God and decide if that's right. You can choose either to have unrestrained sexual desire that is driven by lustful flesh, or instead you can have a body that is under control of the Holy Spirit for holiness and honor to God. That's your choice. But know what you're choosing, and in verse 6, this is the choice that you would make, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You know, sexual immorality is a transgression not only to God, but also to our fellow man. And I've said recently how we like to make this subtle agreement in our minds where if I just do this thing secretly and privately, it's my own thing, I'm not hurting anyone. I'll tell you what, sexual sin always wrongs other people. Whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually, sexual sin wrongs others. And the Lord is an avenger of all these things. Then Paul essentially says, now you can't say we didn't tell you. You've now been told the truth and now you have a choice that you need to make. If you're set apart for Jesus Christ, you ought to obey this instruction, but if you decide not to, know that God is an avenger in all these things. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You're like, I thought we were talking about the rapture today. (laughs) We are. Because this prepares us for the rapture. How do you want to be found at Jesus' coming? I know I do not want to be found in a sexually immoral situation at the coming of Christ. So therefore, we purify ourselves. Because we do not want to shrink back at his coming. We want to be found in honor and holiness before our God. So this prepares us for the rapture. This is why I'm spending the time that we are on this. Now, verses seven and eight says, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is reiterating that these instructions are not of man but of God. So if you want to disregard everything that I've said today, because you love sexual sin more than you love God. Just know that it's not the teaching of man that you're disregarding. You're not offending me. 
It's the teaching of God that you're disregarding. And that's a solemn warning to all of us. See, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. And that's a true statement. And the best thing about it is that where God gives a command, he also empowers you for it. It's why he says he gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so you can rely on the Holy Spirit's power to resist any sexual temptation and to have control of your body in holiness and honor. Amen? Amen. Now in verses 9 through 12, we'll see now instruction regarding work. Okay? Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What I love here is that Paul saw love as work. It's why in chapter one he said that the church had labors of love. And the love that Paul often referred to was agape love. It's an unconditional, sacrificial, selfless and giving kind of love. It's the love that Jesus demonstrated for us at the cross when he died for sinners, even everyone who has been sexually immoral. He loves us so much that he died on the cross. And it's often why we will say, believe in the work of Jesus on the cross. Because it was work. Jesus was laboring in love when he died for sinners. And he didn't do it reluctantly, he did it willfully. And so Paul is exhorting these brothers and sisters in Christ toward more of that love, and more specifically, love that comes from God and then is shown to others, the brotherly love, the phileo love. He says, you guys are doing well in this. You're a loving church, but I'm going to say this, do it more. More and more we can be sanctified in our love And not only that, in verse 11, we see these instructions that we're to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands. Again, a whole message could have been preached just on those words, couldn't they? But these three charges are given for good reason, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, this serves as us being like a witness to the unbelieving world. And just like sex was created before sin entered the world, so was work. Sin has marred our view of work where either we avoid it or we do it excessively. And God has a balance of work and rest for his sanctified people. But let's look quickly at what Paul says about the way we should work. We should aspire to live quietly. You guys all good? To aspire to live quietly means that there's something right about working hard and doing it without grumbling and complaining. And to bring home provisions in a way that will be loving and serving your family. It's that simple and quiet life of godly contentment. And then he says, mind your own affairs or mind your own business. Did you know that comes right out of the Bible? It's right there. Mind your own business. There's something right about working hard 
and not worrying about the work that everyone else is doing. To do your own work unto the Lord and not to meddle in other people's affairs. Idleness is usually the catalyst for busybodies. And so when we work, we're usually minding our own business. And then we're told to work with our hands. There's just something right, again, about working with your hands and having the satisfaction of a job well done. And Paul will say in his next letter to the Thessalonians that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. So when we work with our hands, again, we are being image bearers of a working God, and we find that our work is pleasing to Him. And now we come to our last section with only five minutes left, which is a true preacher's 15 minutes. (laughs) But we've set the foundation for the rapture of the church. Because here's the issue of what was going on in Thessalonica is that, well, Jesus is coming, so let's just live however we're going to live. And and we don't need to work because he's just going to come. Why why do we need to work? He's coming back. We need to live in holiness and honor and walk with God in purity and integrity so that we are prepared for when Jesus comes. And guess what? Jesus didn't come back for the Thessalonian church. They all died. And, And so the question is, well, when's Jesus coming back? Soon soon. Jesus can come back today. Do you believe that? If you believe that, that will shape how you live today. It'll shape how you live today if you believe Jesus could come back today. This would be a great moment for him to come back. Lord, come Jesus. We want to be found right here in this situation with our Bibles open, hearing the word of God, right? That's, that's when we want him to come. Like rapture right now, let's go. But we don't want it to come when we're found in sexual immorality. We don't want him to come when we're gossiping and meddling about a coworker. We don't want him to come in those situations. We want him to be coming when we are found honoring him, which is how we ought to always live our lives. Now, verses 13 through 18 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve at as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is where we find the clear biblical teaching of the rapture of the church. And the reason, again, why I've spent a good deal of time looking at the scriptures prior to this is because we need to consider the character of our conduct, the character and conduct of our lives today on earth if we want to be prepared for this rapture. And so don't fret. I'm going to talk more about the rapture next week. So come back next week. Next week's going to be a great sermon. But too often, people get so zealous for end times prophecies, which is great, and I love it. 
but they sometimes miss the influence that it should have on the way we live here on earth today. And that seemed to be the case again for the Thessalonians. Let's not be in danger of so looking into the future that we forget what is right in front of us. Now, Paul is going to clear some things up concerning those who have died in Christ before that great day will come. Of course, I've said that includes every Thessalonian believers and all believers who have died in Jesus before his second coming, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet. So don't, he hasn't come again. But again, it could happen at any moment. So we need to be ready. And so he says he does not want believers to be uninformed about these things, which isn't it interesting that these are often the things Christians are uninformed about, the return of Christ. He doesn't want us to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses the words fallen asleep to speak softly about the death of believers, sort of how we would say they've passed away. Because these people had some questions about loved ones who had died before Jesus would come back. They, they had been instructed by Paul, Jesus could come back at his second coming and, and take us up into the clouds, and so you need to be ready, and then their friend Johnny died. Or, or, or Frank died, and it's like, oh, what about them, right? And it's like, you need to understand that, that what happens to the people who die before the coming of the Lord? Well, first Paul says that those who fall asleep, that, that we can respond differently to how people die. Because remember, we're sanctified, we're different from the world, which means that we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. You know, there's something so profoundly comforting to know that when a believer in Jesus Christ dies, that we who have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus can respond differently. Amen? See, the death and resurrection of Jesus changes the way we grieve about death. We can still be sad, but we can grieve when our loved ones die, where we grieve in hope. And that's just something that the world doesn't have. And then in verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus means something for our own death and resurrection. It means that when we die, we will also be raised with Christ, that our last breath on earth is our first breath in God's presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. That believing Jesus Christ died and rose again completely alters the reality of death for us. We have no fear in death because we realize that it is just like falling asleep and waking up in glory. In verse 15 says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, so Paul's saying, you need to understand that if you're alive and still on the earth at the coming of the Lord, you will not have any greater advantage over those who have died prior to the coming of Jesus. See, the Thessalonians were concerned that if someone died before the return of Jesus, then they would miss out on that glorious occasion. And Paul said that's not the case. And then he gives something like an order of events to explain how the dead in Christ and the living in Christ 
both experienced the coming of the Lord. And this is our key verse right here. Verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There will be a day, and no one will be able to predict when it happens, which is why we need to conduct ourselves in such a way that we're ready for it to happen at any moment. Where just as the Lord ascended into heaven after his resurrection, in like manner Jesus will descend from heaven. He will come with those who have believed in his death and resurrection and died. Because we know that anyone who has believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are his sanctified people. They're his church. But there might still be people in the church who are alive at the coming. So what happens to them? They will be raptured. And it will be recognizable. No one is going to miss it. Don't let anyone deceive you and say that Jesus has already come back and you missed it. It will be evidence. And there are three specific things that will make it evidence. A cry of a command, a voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet of God. And so when you hear that cry and that voice and that sound, it will be unmistakable. Because not only will we hear a command and an angel and a trumpet, but there will be this awesome moment when the dead in Christ will rise first, and then when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Again, don't worry, we're going to talk more about this next week. But I want to end truly want to end here, showing you why believing the teaching of the rapture of the church is important. Because you'll hear people, even well-meaning Christians, say, there's no such thing as the rapture of the church. And they'll say things like, you don't find the word rapture in the Bible. And that's true. You don't find the word rapture in the Greek New Testament because it's a Latin word from the Latin Vulgate. But guess what? You don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, and do we believe that? So that word rapture comes, again, from the Latin word rapturus, which means to be forcefully taken, to be snatched out, to be pulled away. And so what will it all be like? I'm not totally sure. You came to church today, and your pastor said, about the rapture of the church, what will it be like? And I'm just saying, I'm not totally sure. It might frustrate you. But this is what I do know. In some glorious way, I know that Jesus will descend from heaven. And when he does, I will know it. Whether I'm alive or I've already died. Because if I've already died, I will come with him and I will be raised with him. But if I'm alive when it happens, I will be caught up swept up into the clouds, and I will meet with and be joined together with Jesus and all who are in Christ and everyone who has died with him 
and I will be with him always. And I like what my pastor David Guzik says about this teaching in good honesty. He says, we wouldn't believe this unless the Bible told us it were so. Not any more than we would believe that God became a baby, that he did miracles, and that he died on a cross, and he lives in us. I have a hard enough time comprehending the full reality of what it means that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of my body. I don't have a full comprehension of all of the details of what will be the rapture of the church, but I believe because the word of God declares that it will happen, and I'm ready for it to happen. And I'm ready for it to happen at any moment because if Jesus told us when it would happen, you know how we would respond to that? If the rapture were to happen in 10 months, you know how I would live? I live however I want to for nine months, and then in the last month, I would live how I ought to live. But instead, if I don't know when it happens, I will live today as I ought to live. And so in verse 18, we read, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I pray that you've been encouraged today. I pray you've been encouraged toward faith, love, and hope. I pray that you've been encouraged to live as you ought to live here in this world. I hope that you've been encouraged to live with sexual purity before God. I hope that you've been encouraged to live quietly and to work for the Lord. I hope that you've been encouraged about the reality of death and that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus takes away the sting of death. And I hope that you've been encouraged that Jesus will one day come for his church called the rapture, and it might happen while we are on the earth. We don't know, but if it happens, we will gloriously meet the Lord in the air with all who have died in Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. I pray, Lord, that your church would be encouraged in these things and that we would be ready. God, that we would conduct ourselves in such a way that we would be prepared for that moment when you would come. So Lord, right now, we're, we're about to enter into a very sweet time that is pleasing to you, which is that we would worship you, and that is our reasonable service. So Lord, we ask that we would do it in your name today. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand up together, church, for all who are able. We've got prayer here on the sides for anyone who needs prayer, but I just, you know, I pray that you have more answers and questions today but that you would be urged to walk for Jesus. So let's worship him together.